Hello and welcome to the FAST podcast. My name is Andy Shen, and I am the Government and Multilateral Organizations Lead at the Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking Initiative, which is managed by the United Nations University Center for Policy Research. This episode is part two of our podcast on asset recovery and compensation for victims and survivors of forced labor and human trafficking. It comes the same week as the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, or UDHR, the foundation of the international human rights system. The right to freedom from all forms of slavery, the right to just and favorable remuneration for all who work, and the right to an effective remedy for violations of one's fundamental rights are all enshrined in the UDHR and inherent to the dignity of every human being. We encourage listeners to reflect on the importance of remedy, especially compensation, to victims and survivors of human trafficking and forced labor, and the changes that are needed to economic approaches and business models that have caused or contributed to these crimes. For those who did not listen to part one of this series, we will start with a brief introduction of FAST and the Asset Recovery and Restitution Initiative. While part one introduced the Asset Recovery and Restitution Initiative, shared the findings of our research, and highlighted some of our key recommendations, this episode features key external stakeholders that participated in our project and provides them with the opportunity to share their perspectives, insights on remedy, as well as their views on some key issues that emerged during our research and the experts convening in June. Make sure to visit our website, www.fastinitiative.org, where you can access and listen to the podcast through the FAST website in the resources section, or major podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. For the latest on FAST activities and updates, please subscribe to our newsletter and follow our social media channels. On LinkedIn, Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, and on Twitter, or X, at capital F-A-S-T underscore initiative. FAST is a multi-stakeholder initiative that aims to mobilize the financial sector against modern slavery and human trafficking. It is a knowledge partner for governments, multilateral organizations, and financial sector actors alike. Through its alliance building and survivor-informed approach, FAST works with its partners around the world to end modern slavery and human trafficking in line with the UN Sustainable Development Goals, in particular SDG Target 8.7. About a year and a half ago, FAST decided to undertake a new project focused on how the financial sector could help increase remedy and specifically compensation victims and survivors of forced labor or human trafficking in global value chains. Remedy for forced labor and human trafficking is a fundamental human right and guaranteed in many national laws, but the disparity between illicit profits and compensation is glaring. Given the increased use in recent years of both trade and anti-money laundering laws to combat forced labor and human trafficking, FAST decided to explore how the information gathered during the enforcement of forced labor import bans, that is, laws that prohibit the importation of goods produced by forced labor could potentially be used by government agencies that enforce anti-money laundering laws to investigate suspected money laundering, freeze, seize, and confiscate illicit assets and proceeds of human trafficking or forced labor, and compensate victims and survivors with the confiscated assets and proceeds. Currently, the United States, Canada, and Mexico have forced labor import bans, and the European Union is considering a ban as well. The Asset Recovery and Restitution Initiative revealed that while the information used for the enforcement of import bans can be used to facilitate the confiscation of assets and proceeds from individuals or companies in the state where workers were exploited, it is currently not possible for assets and proceeds from forced labor or trafficking to be confiscated from individuals or companies in market states 
when the goods produced by forced labor or trafficking were sold. This is because such transactions are generally not considered a crime and therefore not a predicate offense to money laundering. Even in jurisdictions where knowingly benefiting from forced labor or human trafficking in global value chains is a crime, it has not been treated as a predicate offense to money laundering. Before we dive into this issue, I would like to introduce our guest on this episode of the FAST podcast. We are pleased to have Mr. Caleb Tole from Global Hope Mobilization, a Malawi-based civil society organization. Ms. Martina Vandenberg from the Human Trafficking Legal Center, a U.S.-based civil society organization. Ms. Sherry Levine Shea from Barclays. Ms. Henny Verbeck from the Netherlands Financial Intelligence Unit. And Mr. Brian Hoxie from the Forced Labor Division of U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Martina, I would like to start by asking you to speak on the significance of compensation to victims and survivors of human trafficking and forced labor. Compensation for trafficking survivors is absolutely essential. In the U.S., under U.S. law, it's mandatory. But unfortunately, what we see in so many cases is that restitution is not awarded by the courts. And even when it is awarded by the courts, it's not actually paid out. So trafficking survivors can recover. Survivors of forced labor can recover from the psychological harm. They can recover often from the physical injuries but they do not recover from the financial hit of unpaid labor, sometimes for decades. And so it is incumbent upon us, and it's required under the Palermo Protocol, and it's required certainly under U.S. law, that trafficking survivors have access to compensation, whether that compensation comes through a criminal case or whether that compensation comes through a civil case. But I'm so happy that the FAST initiative is tackling this issue of compensation and restitution for trafficking survivors because it has been really ignored for far too long. And it's important to put attention on this remedy, which is really under-enforced. Caleb, could you please share about your experience working with victims and survivors of human trafficking and forced labor and the significance of compensation to them? Yeah, as indicated, my name is Caleb Tolle. I'm the executive director for Global Hope Mobilization, an institution that is in forefront in the fight against trafficking persons, as well as smuggling of migrants. We are based in Malawi, but we work in the region of Sadiq and Eastern Africa, collaborating with governments and other matrilateral institutions to have collective efforts in the combating human trafficking. What we can say, our institution, we are focusing on of thematic areas. Number one is prevention, to ensure that we prevent uh, trafficking in person. We also provide services around protection for survivors and victims of human trafficking. We also work around issues to do with prosecution. So currently we are following close to 49 cases of trafficking in persons in Malawi, of which uh, 32 have been completed and they list uh, at advanced stage. We are also supporting issues to do with data, especially on trafficking in persons, to ensure that we do have available data of who the traffickers are, who are the money launders are, those who are engaged in illicit drug and other organized crime. So experience has been that while working with uh, victims of trafficking, most of them, they, are, you know, they come from vulnerable families, vulnerable communities where they do not get a lot of support in terms of litigation. For example, we may have a trafficker who has the whole legal team, who has hired well-known lawyers who are able to support him in his case. 
while the victim of trafficking will go in court alone and may not have representation. And you already know that there are those legal language that are used in court where these people who come from poor families they may not be able to get support. So our role has been to work with the Malala Law Society lawyers who have supported us with pro bono services to support these victims of human trafficking. We have managed also to ensure that they get justice, not that those who are in trafficking should walk away. We have also ensured that their cases have come to a completion and that justice has been given to them. But one major area that still outstands is the issue of compensation, where a case can be completed, a trafficker can be prosecuted, and the case can end there without the victim being compensated. So I'm happy to join the conversation and to share our experiences in that regard. Thank you. Thank you, Martina and Caleb. I think we can all agree that victims and survivors must be at the center of the work we do on combating human trafficking and forced labor, and our policies and actions should reflect and address their needs. Sherry, from a financial institution perspective, what more needs to be done to tackle human trafficking and forced labor, and how can we increase compensation for victims and survivors? Thank you, Andy. And before I start, I just want to note that my comments are based on my general experience and are not attributed to my current employer, Barclays, or any prior employers. So financial institutions have multiple tools available to assist with identifying assets involving forced labor and human trafficking. Banks and other financial institutions have an obligation to have an AML program that includes knowing your customer and monitoring activity for suspicious transactions. However, victim compensation is not always a consideration when a bank is developing its AML or anti-money laundering program. I will touch on that in a moment. So one of the obligations we have is to know our customers and conduct due diligence on a bank. So let's take an example. Um, Let's say a bank's customer is an orange farm in Florida. At the time of account opening, they have to ask a number of questions to better understand the type of activity to expect in the account. It could include the amount of revenue, the expected activity, the type of transaction, dollar amounts, and where they conduct business, and even a site visit by the banker. The bank will also collect corporate documentation and independently verify the information provided. Since orange farms are in the agriculture business and the agriculture industry is known to be at high risk for using forced labor, the bank could ask additional questions about how they hire their employees, are they seasonal, how they compensate them, and where are they from? Are they obtained or recruited from non-U.S. locations? The client profile then can be used to monitor the activity in the accounts to see if it aligns with what you would expect. So if the farm is using forced labor, you might see lower payroll expenses through the accounts that are at the bank. Banks could take a much more active role in understanding how their customers operate, and especially in certain jurisdictions that are more vulnerable and industries that are more vulnerable for human trafficking and forced labor. Banks can also screen against a number of lists. In the U.S., there's the U.S. Customs withhold release orders. Those names can be uploaded to the screening tools to see if any transactions are being done with those entities. Those are entities or companies that are involved with forced labor. And then we also have sanctions. OFAC in the U.S. issues sanctions under the Magnitsky Act, which provides sanctions against foreign individuals who have committed human crime abuses. What I think is even more invaluable is the public-private partnership 
with law enforcement, between the banks and law enforcement, and sharing information. It's critical because banks cannot identify human trafficking or forced labor at transactions just by looking at activity alone. Additional information is needed to put it into context. And there are legal ways to share information. Of course, banks have very strict confidentiality laws. However, there are exceptions to those laws if it's involving money laundering. And human trafficking is a predicate offense for money laundering. So one way is if a SARS filed a suspicious activity report based on activity that looks suspicious, law enforcement in the U.S., and I think other jurisdictions have this as well, could request SAR backup information, meaning the underlying transactions and documents used to support the SAR filing. This information could help law enforcement identify assets and help build cases against human traffickers. And then subpoenas. Subpoenas are used quite often to obtain information that can assist with their investigations. With regard to compensation for victims, law enforcement can obtain legal orders to freeze and seize assets that are held at the banks once they identify those assets are there. And those assets can be used to compensate victims. And if the bank has a trade finance business, they receive documents that are often reviewed, such as invoices and bills of laden. That information could help law enforcement locate assets that can also in turn be used to help compensate victims and survivors. Thank you, Sherry. It's important for all stakeholders to consider the perspective of financial institutions and their role in the remedy ecosystem. Henny, financial institutions do not act alone. Financial intelligence units analyze suspicious activity reports from financial institutions and disseminate the results of its analysis to competent authorities. How has the Netherlands FIU cooperated with other Dutch government agencies, foreign FIUs, and financial institutions to enhance trafficking and forced labor investigations and secure compensation for victims and survivors of these crimes? Do you have any good examples? I was saying thank you, Andy, for allowing me to elaborate on this. FIU the Netherlands is very proactive in its work against human trafficking and also in cooperation with other government agencies, but also with the private sector. I have some examples. What I do have to say, though, is that the FIU the Netherlands does not play an explicit role in compensation of victims. Information from the FIU the Netherlands that has been provided can be used in court as evidence, can be used in compensation measures, but the FIU as such doesn't play a specific role in it, although the Netherlands as such has compensation regulations for victims. But then that's mainly when it is in crimes that have been committed in the Netherlands. So that's that's a bit of a limitation to that. Back to where we cooperate. We have, for instance, a public-private partnership with what we call the Labor Inspectorate, who is the law enforcement agency that is explicitly looking at, for instance, forced labor, labor exploitation, and the four largest Dutch banks. It focuses on money laundering in relation to labor exploitation. We also participate in two focus groups in the European public-private partnership that has been initiated by Europol and where several European banks and several law enforcement agencies cooperate. Here we work on the one side on improving the reporting, the quality of the reporting from the private sector to FIUs. And we work on new trends and phenomena to ensure that the private sector all over Europe gets this information and can start working on it. 
We participate in field labs on human trafficking. That's mainly on sexual exploitation. We do a lot of operational information sharing with foreign FIUs. We have to, since human trafficking as such is an international crime. Labor exploitation quite often is. So we need the information from other FIUs. And we do regular consultations with this labor inspectorate and the police on new trends and phenomena. And for instance, last week, the labor inspectorate has started doing some house searches in an investigation that was based on information that we were able to provide them where an employment agency actually seems to abuse the workers that they send to work in several sectors by ensuring that the money they receive, their payment, it does not end up with the workers themselves, but with the employment agencies, leaving the, the employees in, well, very harsh circumstances since they do a lot of hard work, but they hardly receive any income for that. This is a very recent example of what this cooperation can bring, but we have a vast cooperation with both public and private sector in this regards. Thank you, Henny. The Netherlands FIU is one of the leading FIUs in tackling human trafficking and forced labor. We appreciate your insights on how to effectively cooperate with other agencies. Brian, the Top Glove forced labor case is a rare example of exploited workers receiving restitution. Can you share how this happened, the challenges in other cases, and the prospects for not only restitution, but also compensation for victims and survivors of forced labor, and the companies subject to withhold release orders and findings? Thank you for the question, Andy. Uh, absolutely. After CBP issues a withhold release order or finding against a foreign entity, they have the option to request a modification of this action if they're able to demonstrate that all ILO and forced labor indicators found have been addressed and remediated. CBP recommends as a best practice that they demonstrate to the company has remediated forced labor conditions. They hire a third-party auditor to evaluate the company for forced labor indicators. This is followed by a corrective action plan that the company will create to correct issues found in the audit, and then finally a verification audit to confirm that the plan is correct at all of those conditions. Top Glove followed these recommendations and worked with CBP to remediate recruitment fees, withheld wages and penalties for the current and former workers. To do this, CBP issued extensive questionnaires and clarified and collaborated with them on their information provided by Top Glove to ensure workers trapped in debt bondage are repaid. Top Glove is not the only example of workers receiving restitution. CBP has worked with other companies that have remediated WROs to continue this best practice, and these companies have publicly announced a combined total of over 62 million U.S. dollars in repayment of recruitment fees, withheld wages, and penalties. One challenge we see, however, from companies on implementing working worker repayments is that they need a full list of former employees exploited by these practices. However, CBP recommends as a best practice for the company to establish a sinking fund for the repayment of former workers. Those eligible for repayment would have to have worked for the company no less than two years prior to the issuance of a withhold release order or finding. As far as prospects for survivors of forced labor, CBP continues to recommend repayment and sinking funds as best practices for compensating victims. And it's the best way to ensure all workers have been repaid these exploitive fees. In addition, CBP continues to emphasize to companies that auditing their operations to ensure that no worker should have to pay for a job and that they are fully responsible for ensuring their recruiters are not exploiting laborers for their own gain. 
Thanks for sharing that with us, Brian. We look forward to seeing more cases where restitution and hopefully also compensation is obtained by victims and survivors. For the last part of this podcast, we will discuss one of the key recommendations in the RE report. Criminalizing, knowingly benefiting financially from human trafficking or forced labor and making it a predicate offense to money laundering. The Asset Recovery and Restitution Initiative has championed the use of the anti-money laundering framework to facilitate compensation for victims from companies and market states that financially benefit from the forced labor. This would require states to criminalize financially benefiting from forced labor if they have not already done so and making it a predicate offense to money laundering. Henny, could you please share your thoughts on this? Yeah, LDF here in the Netherlands really supports FAST's recommendation on this topic. You know, when I recently agreed that I would cooperate to this podcast, I think it was one or two days later that all over the news was this situation of Chinese companies that catch, process and or export fish, which is also sold in the Netherlands. And that is all based on forced labor, on labor exploitation. So this was a real example on the spot of how things happen also in Europe and also in the Netherlands. So having an EU-wide ban, because this is not something EU member states can do on their own, would be definitely very welcome. And although it may be possible already in the Dutch current legal framework, because you're talking about stolen labor, that's how I think you can you can actually describe it, and making use of the profits, what has been stolen is in itself already forbidden. It's extremely difficult to prove what has happened abroad. The situation from the Chinese companies was brought forward by a global group that had been investigating it for a long time. But then still, it has to be acceptable for court. So making it very clear, a predicate offense will in any case ensure that companies in the Netherlands and with it in Europe be more vigilant in what are the circumstances that the products that we are buying and selling have been produced. And that's, that's of course, in essence what you want. First of all, you don't want it to happen. And if it happens, you want people to be compensated. And, well, I would also welcome that we might even turn it around, that companies who import goods would have an obligation to provide evidence that these imported goods are the products of fair labor, fair labor labor conditions. But again, also that might be a pretty difficult thing, but everything in this regard seemed difficult when we started. So we'd better get it started. Thank you. Thank you very much, Henny. We appreciate your thoughts on that. And Martina, I'll turn it over to you for some reflections. So I do want to point out that it's a joy to be on this podcast with an official from the Netherlands because the Netherlands is way ahead of many, many countries around the globe on restitution. The way that the system works in the Netherlands is if there's a criminal case and restitution is ordered, the government has a certain period of time, I believe it's six months, to try and collect the money from the defendants. And if the defendants don't pay, then the government of the Netherlands pays the restitution to the victims. And then the government of the Netherlands tries to enforce that restitution order against the defendant. That means that victims in the Netherlands, survivors in the Netherlands are getting compensation in a way that survivors in really every other country in the world are not. And so I think that the Netherlands is about 10 steps ahead 
particularly on this question of restitution. So I just want to say what a joy it is to be on this podcast with someone from the Netherlands. On this question, though, of predicate acts and anti-money laundering laws, in the United States, human trafficking and forced labor are already predicate acts, and financially benefiting is already built into the human trafficking statute. So the U.S. has already moved in this direction, and happily, the Department of Justice has for quite some time had a dedicated anti-money laundering prosecutor embedded at the Department of Justice to work with the Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit. So I think that the mechanisms, the vehicles are there to do this in the United States, but it hasn't yet been done properly. The other thing that we are eager to see more implementation on is the issuance of fines against importers in the United States. The system is in a sense unbalanced and unfair because it's the producers in the countries of origin of those goods who are suffering, right? It is the producers who are being punished. It is not the companies who are importing and financially benefiting from the forced labor that face any punishment in the United States. And so far, Customs and Border Protection has only issued one fine, and that was a fine for use of prison labor in the creation of stevia that was then imported in the United States. And that fine was only $575,000. So we need to be much more vigilant about following the money, but not just following the money for the sake of investigation. We need to be vigilant about finding the money for the sake of capturing the money in order to provide it as restitution for victims. And so this recommendation from the FAST initiative to really look carefully at criminal law, anti-money laundering law, and forced labor, both in the country of origin and in the country of importation, is really fundamental if we're going to actually give any compensation to survivors. And again, compensation can be ordered, but in order to be meaningful, compensation must be paid. Thank you for those insights and reflections, Martina. Caleb, could you share your thoughts about this proposal? In our earlier discussion during that conversation, we had also suggested that we know that most of the cash crops that are grown, tobacco, and we do not want to mention companies here, where a board member or chairperson of that company gets 15 million pounds in a year, where a tenant in a country where tobacco is grown gets 200 pounds in a year. So you see the discrepancy in that regard. So those companies that are blacklisted or companies that are producing tobacco, cigarettes or any other using this forced labor type of work, once they have that opportunity, we believe that, that those compensation should be done. We are also expectant, especially in Malawi, we know there are cases that are going on in court currently in the UK, and we believe that those 15,000 farmers that really need compensation, uh, they are given compensation appropriately and accordingly. So whether national or international, multinational or regional companies that are engaged in such practices, they have a responsibility to ensure that the compensation also goes down to, but we need to put mechanism on how base are we going to work with these companies? How do we get these companies accountable? What are the mechanisms? So we need a lot of voice, a lot of advocacy, a lot of push using any other 
tools available within ourselves to ensure that this comes to fruitful and is practical. Thank you, Caleb. I think your point that it's important to look at all the mechanisms that we can use to achieve the objective of ensuring victims and survivors are compensated is very important. We have now reached the end of this episode of the FAST podcast. I would like to thank all of our participants for their contributions and their efforts to protect and support victims and survivors of human trafficking and forced labor around the world. Human dignity is at the heart of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and remedy for modern slavery is about restoring victims. As we have heard from Martina and Caleb, remedy, including compensation, is incredibly important to victims and survivors of human trafficking and forced labor. Much more needs to be done by all stakeholders in the remedy ecosystem, but we are encouraged by the examples Annie and Brian shared of how their agencies are contributing to restitution and compensation for victims and survivors. Financial institutions have a critical role to play in ensuring compensation for victims and survivors of trafficking and forced labor. We heard from Sherry about what more can be done with the current anti-money laundering tools. And we heard from Henny, Martina, and Caleb about FAST proposal for a new predicate offense to money laundering. Establishing knowingly benefiting financially from human trafficking and forced labor as a crime and a predicate offense to money laundering requires significant political will from all states and support from financial institutions and other reporting entities in order to reshape the global economy and effectively end the profit motive for modern slavery. Much can be done to close the remedy gap for victims and survivors of human trafficking and forced labor, regardless of whether such a monumental change in the anti-money laundering framework occurs. But interagency, intergovernmental, and multi-stakeholder cooperation is critical to ensuring victims and survivors are fully compensated for the work they do and the harms they suffer. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FAST podcast, and stay tuned for more episodes in the future.